Hey, we're here with Casey Armstrong. He's the CMO of ShipBob, one of the fastest growing companies in the country and certainly in the context of e-commerce. Let's dive right in. Casey, you have had this long career in e-commerce as um, someone who's founded agencies and run agencies, somebody who has run e-commerce brands, somebody who has run marketing for large um, e-commerce platforms, somebody who's now running marketing for ShipBob, which is one of the fastest growing companies in the States. And it's given you such a first row, uh, first a front row seat to e-commerce and how it's evolved. So maybe you can just give us your personal story in a few minutes. How's, how has your career evolved and, and what, what, what should we know about you? Yeah, I'll, I'll keep this rather short. So I got, uh, I got started in the space um, helping run an agency. And we focus primarily on B2B SaaS companies um, and then e-commerce to an extent as well. And honestly, this was like way before I had any right uh, helping with marketing and growth and all of that stuff, but it was the best way to learn. Just jump in the deep end and uh, get your hands dirty across every single channel in these highly competitive uh, spaces. And there, there's no better way to learn it, sink or swim. If, if I wanted to, I guess this is somewhat hyperbolic, but if I wanted to feed myself and my family, I had to, you know, survive or and and help help these businesses thrive. So that's how I got started, really on the agency front, which definitely is a unique lens into the different industries. Uh, then you know, fast forward a bit, um, I helped uh, run a company called Watchmaster, and we were a direct to consumer luxury watch brand over in actually over in Europe. And so um, we would actually buy from essentially we buy from the south and sell in the north. And so those were more of the affluent countries and also depending on uh, the value added tax or VAT over there, uh, there's actually some margin to be gained um, based off of where you buy and where you sell as well. And so I want to say we did close to 30 million in our first year. And so that was pretty fun and crazy to see the growth through that. Um, from there, I jumped over to big commerce, which is one of the largest e-commerce e platforms out there. And then a couple of years ago, I uh, moved over to ShipBob. So you know, to be able to join a company like ShipBob, which is trying to change the entire fulfillment game, which is, uh, I think fulfillment logistics are definitely getting a huge spotlight right now, especially during you know COVID and the importance of that, and also being able to re reliably ship fast and inexpensively. And uh, so it's just been a lot of fun to help, you know, see a lot of these e-commerce businesses grow. And then especially in the last few months to see how they've evolved and managed to, to survive or thrive during these times as well. Yeah. Um, maybe, maybe kind of to go back to Watchmaster for a second. So you, you ran marketing for Watchmaster, which was a large and, and quickly growing e-commerce company. Um, what platform was, was the, was the brand built on? Full, full custom build. And so one of the interesting things over in Europe, things have changed a bit since then. Um, but just how people buy, like if you're going to sell in Europe, something that you really need to think through is like, how are people transacting? And so that's what's interesting, whether it be WooCommerce or Shopify or BigCommerce, you know, they all started as a shopping cart. That's it. Was I have this good and I have money I want to give you. And how can we transact? So it starts as a shopping cart and then it turn, turns into an e-commerce shopping platform. And so the thing over there was, so we were based in, we were based in Berlin. So in Germany, even if you're very affluent, oftentimes your credit limit. And so we were, again, we were selling luxury watches. Our average order value or AOV was like 6,000 Euro. Um, and so it was a bit unique compared to like a lot of the businesses, but still something to think through. Um, the credit card limit, even for a lot of the affluent uh, Germans, was maybe a max of like 1,000 or 2,000 euros. And so they often couldn't even transact with a credit card. And so we had to think through um, items like ACH, which was hands down our biggest uh, number one way people transacted or, or direct, direct deposit or direct payment. And then number two is actually people would want to come in and pick it up in person and pay, um, pay on delivery. And so that's very different, whereas in when we went to France, people, you know, France has a lot of pride with the country. And so they always want to transact through, you know, the payment processors or French banks. Um, and then in the UK, they operate very similarly to the US high credit card limits, they would just put in their credit card, they would pay right there. That was very easy. 
Uh, the Nordics was kind of a, a mix between like Germany and uh, the UK. Point being, it's, it's Europe, but it's a bunch of different countries that operate very differently. And so I think, you know, a lot of the one click like Amazon and Shop Pay and um, PayPal are definitely growing a lot over there along with things like Affirm and others, if you have like a, a higher AOV product where you're gonna wanna pay, um, you know, on, on installments, which Shopify just recently announced as well. And so that's just something to think through. Um, that I was surprised we spent so much time thinking through was the ability to just transact that dollar, which is something so many of us take for granted because of what companies like Shopify um, or big commerce or PayPal have allowed to you know us to to do so easily. Super interesting. What? Um, how did you go from Watchmaster to big commerce? Did they recruit you, or did you see an opportunity and apply? What was what was the story there? Yeah, they just hit me up out of the blue, um, and they were a company that I'd followed for uh, for quite a while, um, and then. As always, I met the team and I was extremely, uh, you know, bullish on, on the people who were there. Uh, they had a great product, which makes, you know, somebody who's doing marketing or sales makes their jobs a lot easier. Uh, and also, you know, it's in an industry where the pie is growing and I was just bullish on, on e-commerce in general. So jumped on over there. Yeah, super interesting. Do you think it's fair to say that for the majority of direct consumer brands in the United States, it's... Shopify, Big Commerce, WooCommerce, or Magento, or are we are we missing any? Uh, custom builds as well, but yeah, um, Shopify and Woo, just from like a total, um, let's say logo perspective or like unique stores, you know, it's got to be Shopify and then Woo. Um, but Big Commerce is up there, Magento is definitely up there from like a GMB perspective or the amount of revenue they're processing. Um, you know, Magento is arguably at number one with Shopify growing extremely quickly right behind them. Um, and then probably big commerce than Woo. Um, lots has been written about an SMB revolution of sorts in e-commerce. Mary Meeker has talked about the million new e-commerce stores founded over the last half decade driven by tools like Stripe and platforms like Shopify and also, um, um, advertising platforms like Facebook. When you were at Big Commerce, um, what were the two or three things that you learned that that stand out that would be useful for D2C merchants at this point? Um, so what was interesting is like we had like a whole quarter, more or less, um, not the whole company, but uh, a subset where we, it was just very dedicated like on um, uh, the digital wallets. And so again, like that, um, PayPal one click, Amazon one click, Visa one click. Uh, I know that they sometimes use different term, uh, uh, terminology to um, how, how they classify those specific items. Basically all these one click options and just, just these digital wallets and the proliferation of them and the usage is just, is just off the charts. I was actually very surprised to see, um, and again, I left there about two years ago. And so things have, you know, things changed so quickly uh, and the data can swing pretty fast. But you know, even when I was there, the adoption rate and usage of PayPal was off the charts. I was actually very surprised. Um, and, and so I think, you know, again, focusing, making sure you focus on just a lot of the basics, like how can somebody pay me? Is there any friction in somebody paying me? And it makes sense with a lot of these because let's say I'm laying in bed and I want to buy whatever this black iPhone case. Uh, you know, I, I guess sadly know my credit card number. Uh, maybe most people do, but a lot of people might not. And they don't want to go down. It's just the little things like they were ready to buy, but they didn't want to go downstairs or go into the next room to go get their credit card. And so they're not going to buy and then they're going to get distracted from Instagram or you know, Twitter or TikTok or Netflix or something. Um, and so it's just, just some like the basics like that. And so I would have written off PayPal because I thought that was a thing of the past. And then I saw with some of our customers, you know, they were generating 80% of their sales through, you know, a digital wallet. And of that 80% were coming from PayPal. And so, you know, that's, that's like, don't take that 
you know, is gospel for every single website. But I would see that more often than not, you know, just some of these digital wallets or items that you'd write off, um, you know, were, were much more prevalent than, than you would think. That's super interesting. I think it's a, it's a good, I mean, I think what it, it ultimately suggests is that one of the things that surprised you most was the proliferation of tools to make the customer experience um, fric as frictionless as possible. That's probably a good segue into your time at ShipBob. Can you tell us a little bit about what ShipBob does um, and um, kind of how the company came to be? Yeah, so um, actually real quick, a related thing to mention, actually it's something that I learned from a customer of ours at ShipBob, but it's similar to the example I gave before, which is also, I think a lot of people try to I don't know, engineer overly complex ways to, to move their business forward when there's often just like a few things that can really help move the needle. And so we had this customer um, and he was, he was showing us some of his data where in, it was like 2017, he was growing, things were going really well. And then he saw it just a really flat line in 2018 uh, and his conversion rates fell off a cliff. Um, and then we were doing like our quarterly business review with him last week. And, and I was talking to him, like your sales are off the charts this year. Like how, how it's, it's up like five X from what it was last year. You know, did you start throwing a bunch of money at Facebook and Instagram? What did you start doing? And what he realized is he actually had this disclaimer about the products he was selling on his checkout page. Um, and it was more of just him like, uh, erring on the extreme side of caution with his product, but it was kind of like an unnecessary uh, caution warning that he was putting on the checkout page. And all he did was delete it. That was literally <laughs> all he did. And his conversion rates went up like something like three X. Um, and so his ROI on ad spend was just, you know, much greater. And so he was able to spend more on, let's say Facebook or Instagram, but not at the clip that he had due to five X his business. Um, and so every channel started being much more profitable. And so now he's doing, you know, 5,000 plus orders a month, whereas before, you know, he was doing, you know, pre Black Friday, Cyber Monday last year, he was doing, I don't know, like 700, 800 orders a month. Uh, and that's literally all he changed. And so again, it's just think through some of the basics, especially starting like from the checkout experience and like, how are people able to buy? Um, so back to ship Bob. So Right. Um, at, at, at ShipHub, we're, um, you know, an, an e-commerce 3PL. We have 10 fulfillment centers across uh, the U.S., Canada, and Europe. Uh, and we're trying to bring that, or we are bringing that Amazon-level two-day, three-day shipping experience to direct-to-consumer brands. What's the relationship between um, Shopify fulfillment and ShipHub? So they're rolling out a similar-ish solution. Um, I don't work there, so I don't know, obviously, everything behind the scenes. But something that we focus on at ShipBob and what we find extremely important is uh, the, the ability for us to control um, the entire technology stack because that's how we think that we can provide best-in-class um, logistics. And so what I mean by that is, so a customer of ours they will utilize, um, they will, let's take a company that we highlighted recently. So TB12, so Tom Brady's brand. So they will utilize um, uh, the ShipHop software, which is how they do their order and inventory management. Um, and that's how they can track everything coming in, going out. Uh, they have full transparency on, on items that they are sending us from their manufacturer or manufacturers. They can see who's, who's ordering, uh, what status they're in. They can even see like who's picking and packing all these items. And that gets me to the next part of the technology stack, which is our warehouse management system or WMS. And so that's a ShipBob WMS that, that we built. Um, and that's deployed across all of our fulfillment centers. And that way, the standards of which we execute are the same across every single, network, across every single fulfillment center. And that way we can also continue to optimize from a software perspective on our efficiency, which then turns into efficiency gains or cost savings for our customers, and then likely cost savings or faster shipping for their customers. And so an example of that would be, um, 
you know, one example would be something we call like batch picking. And so let's just take uh, TB12 again. So they have this TB12 Tampa shirt, um, especially when he jumped over from New England to Tampa Bay, it started flying off the shelves. Um, that single item, we might pick and pack hundreds of, hundreds of those in a day for weeks on end. And so that way we can continue to iterate and optimize that batch picking process from a software perspective. So we keep doing that faster and faster and faster and faster and more efficiently with fewer issues or errors or anything like that. And then that same technology is deployed across the entire fulfillment network and which therefore benefits every single, you know, the 3,500 plus customers that we have. And then another thing with the distributed fulfillment model, um, again, uh, so we mentioned we've got, so there are eight, currently there are eight in the US, one in Canada and one in Europe, is that way our customers can start to expand uh, the fulfillment centers that they start to utilize with us, which allows them to get closer to the end consumer, which means uh, you know, cheaper shipping costs for them or for the customer and faster shipping costs for both them and the customers. And so TB12 is a great example of that where we have a location down in St. Petersburg, Florida, which is, I want to say 30 miles or so from Tampa. And so they were already utilizing a handful of our other fulfillment centers, but very easily they were able to turn on our Florida hub because of course they're going to start to see a massive uptick in orders from the greater Florida area, especially the Tampa Bay region, because Tom Brady, you know, decided to start playing there. Super interesting. Um, let's start to shift a little bit towards how direct-to-consumer merchants and brands um, should should and can be thinking about how to differentiate in the in the era of Amazon. Um, have you ever heard of? Scott Galloway or, or the book, The Four? I've not read The Four, but yes, I'm very familiar with Scott Galloway. You know, he's, he's, he's the irreverent professor. He's, um, you know, he writes um, in that book that, you know, the story for Jeff Bezos was build the biggest store on earth. And the strategy would be huge investments in consumer benefits. Um, most, most emphatically, lower cost, greater selection and faster delivery. Um, you know, when we think about direct to consumer, um, you know, I think a lot of people often think, okay, this is probably more of a specialty brand or a specialty product. Um, and it's less about selection. It's more about scarcity. It's less about lower cost and more about, um, value. Um, but delivery is such an important component in that and consumers value the speed of delivery so much. So can you talk at a high level about, um, what you've seen from the best D2C companies as it relates to differentiating in, in, in the context of Amazon being as powerful as it's become? Yeah, I think it's important to think of Amazon not necessarily as a competitor, but as a complement or maybe just as another you know, company in the space. Obviously, they're the whatever 10,000-pound gorilla or however you want to classify them. But they can win and you can win as well. And what I think a lot of the best brands are doing um, is, and this stands whether it's uh, you know five years ago or today in today's world or in ten years, is they're creating that relationship with the customers. And so with Amazon, you know, I, I'm betting my you know professional career on on D 2 C and e-commerce, um, but. I'm equally bullish on Amazon and those things don't have to conflict. They're not mutually exclusive, but Amazon, I think Amazon in certain areas provides an amazing customer experience, but I'm not creating a relationship with Amazon. They're this, you know, faceless org or except for when, you know, Bezos is in the news or there's some Bezos meme blowing up, which are always enjoyable. Um, but with these D2C brands, you have that ability where you're not operating at the scale of Amazon, but you can use that to your benefit, where you can start developing this relationship much more on a one-to-one -one basis with your customers. Uh, because your current customers, like there, there's nobody, it, it's so much, especially like in the B2B space, but even in like the direct-to-consumer space, it's so much easier to sell back into somebody who's a, an existing customer 
then generate a sale from a new customer. And also there is no more efficient channel than word of mouth. And that's going to come from your existing customer base. It's the toughest to scale. It's the toughest to measure and it takes time, but that's, what's going to build your brand. And so I think about, you know, that where I wouldn't necessarily just don't always think about Amazon, but how can you think about your customer base and how can you continue to provide them with, with what they need and interact with them and create that relationship. And then also view Amazon as like a compliment. And so uh, there's a, a customer of ours I was talking to the other day and what they actually do is um, they don't, they always launch their, their new products on their website for, for 90 days before it goes on to Amazon. And so people know, and, and they've built a very loyal customer base. They're in the beauty space, um, but they will go for, they just have like the steadfast rule 90 days before it touches Amazon. Um, and that's just their approach. And maybe that's right for some businesses and not right for others. Uh, I know other brands where they'll have, um, you know, they'll have only specific items on Amazon and also think through like, how is Amazon going to drive business to yours? Cause, cause what this brand also sees is some of their fast movers or best sellers on their website actually don't move as well on, let's say Amazon, but Amazon can move a lot of their slower moving products, maybe because there's a lot of search volume. Or like they said that they have these like Christmas bundles. And so I guess people search for Christmas bundles, maybe looking for deals like in February and March. And they actually see those sell throughout the entire year. But people going directly to their site, which is on Shopify, nobody ever buys a Christmas bundle unless it's in like November, December, or January. Um, and so it's just, you know, just think through like, how are people utilizing this channel? And then how can you utilize that? you know, to maybe continue to drive people with or generate awareness for your brand. Because what I've also seen is people who neglect Amazon, because there's no one size fits all. People who neglect Amazon, like, uh, especially, especially pre-coronavirus, you know, like the luggage brand Away, who's doing rather well, um, they were not on Amazon at all. But if you would Google for Away luggage, which got some pretty strong search impression or search share, all of their competitors were bidding on them. And so they were probably getting rather inexpensive conversions because Away was not even on Amazon. So Away wasn't getting any of the organic lift. And maybe this is just a brand decision from them. And maybe it was the right move. I, I'm not saying it was right or wrong, but all I'm saying is that there could be opportunities there that I've seen other brands do where they're like, okay, my competitor has a lot of more awareness than I do, but they're very anti-Amazon. So how can I piggyback off of, off of their search share when they're not even trying to play in the space? Those are both good, really good stories. Um, we've, you've, you've said the word brand several times. Um, over the last five years, I've, I've kind of thought about branding a lot and found there to be like a relatively interesting debate between brand building and brand marketing versus performance marketing or performance e-commerce marketing. Um, having been on the brand side, um, how have you thought about the idea of brand, brand marketing versus performance marketing and, and where do they start to intersect? So the way that I, it, I feel like you don't, you need to nail your performance marketing because you need to drive a scalable and repeatable, you know, top of funnel and business that's profitable or, you know, based off of lifetime value profitable, um, or else you haven't really, I don't know, deserve the right to start doing brand marketing, but I don't think they're exclusive. So like when we do certain things, um, let's say it's ShipBob, which is a logistics company, uh, you know, I'm, I'm biased, but I think that we've done a, a pretty good job of building like a brand and interest there. Even at the end of the day, we're moving boxes, if I'm going to be completely honest, but there still can be a cool aspect of it. Um, like Shopify has done a great job of this, um, where at the end of the day, it's technology, it's software. Like, why is that interesting? But they've built such a brand, like when they had their reunite, like one of the things I was so impressed by with when they did their online version of their unite conference the other week with reunite people were hosting like webinars in advance and it was like this pre-party to this like digital event like 
you know, there's going to be no number that you can associate with that. But when people are throwing like virtual pre-parties to your 10 a.m. Uh, event online and you're a software company, like I think you've got something going. Um, you built a brand. And like, the, the, like building a brand is not like a point in time. It's not like you built a brand and then you stop focusing on brand. Like this is something you need to evolve and like uh, grow like every single day. Um, but I think that, uh, but you know, but, but again, brand and performance marketing are not exclusive of one another. You should, you should be building a brand, I think, in your performance marketing. And so I think some of the D2C brands that do this really well, again, especially with with coronavirus and, and people having to really modify what they're doing from like a creative perspective is how can you get some customer of yours with their iPhone to shoot a, 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 a testimonial or them uh, applying the product or utilizing the product or create a mashup of a handful of your customers or pour through Instagram and ask them if you can chop up a bunch of the videos that all of your customers are doing and utilize that as an ad. Because that way you're, you're already, already nailing social proof, but then you're also building this like, you're building this brand uh, from a lot of the customer base as well and showcasing in action. So you're killing a bunch of birds with one stone um, and you're having fun, I think, while doing it as well. Um, and so, you know, I, again, I think that people should think about how can you kind of do them together. Yeah, I love that example. I mean, I, one of my questions was going to be, how do you think about brand building and, and doing brand building efficiently? And you just described, I think, a, a perfect example of an activity that does a lot, uh, has a lot of leverage across a number, a pretty broad surface area, um, but it's you know relatively low time and, and financial investment. Um, when you think about a company that has you know started to 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 really demonstrate traction. They're doing a million dollars or $2 million in, in direct to consumer sales. They've, they've sold to a couple of thousand customers. Um, you've mentioned already the idea of creating a direct one-to-one relationship with the customer and really focusing on building word of mouth, which will take a long time, but ultimately um, compounds so much. What are you seeing the best D2C companies do to create loyalty and extend lifetime value? after they've have kind of really get, gotten off the ground and are demonstrating the real potential of the business? I think it's identifying what are tangential products or related products that will help benefit, let's say your hero product or hero products or your, your current catalog. Um, I, was, I was talking to a good friend of mine this morning. He and his wife launched a brand about 18 months ago. Um, they have a, kind of a, uh, a leg up because she's got a, a rather large following um, on YouTube and is very connected into that space. But they have, you know, their their hero product base. And then from talking to their customers and honestly surveying and just asking your customers, um, maybe even I don't think they do this, but I've seen some brands do some pretty cool stuff here. I think uh, actually Patrick over at Supplies done this where maybe even like in the post purchase experience. So boom, I buy again whatever it may be this black iPhone case. I convert, then hit me with a survey. Like maybe why did you buy? Why did you buy us versus somebody else? Or what else would you like to see? Because if I'm buying this black iPhone case, maybe I also want some black knockoff, uh, whatever they're called, Air AirPods. Um, obviously have like the old school ones. Um, so maybe that makes me not cool. But um, it's, it's just like, just talking to your customers and asking them like, what else do you want to see? Because you can, you can carve off the hour hours it takes to go through these results because this is going to save you so much time from trying to guess um, or, you know, use your intuition on what the, what the follow-up products will be, you know, taking that, that customer feedback. Uh, and, and the, you know, sometimes people are like, well, now I have thousands of customers, so I can't talk to them all. You're right. But you can talk to a subset where you can ask them and start getting some of that feedback. I mean, we do the same at, at ShipBob. Um, we do, uh, we have a, you know, product advisory council that we were doing at least in person until recently, every six months or so, um, where we would fly out, you know, our top X number of customers. And then one of the things at the end of the day was, you know, what do you want to see from either a product or operations standpoint more than anything else? And it's like, okay, you each have three boats. 
circle your favorites. Okay, now we've whittled this list down even more. Now you have three more votes. You can use all three on one thing, you can use one on each, divvy up your, your votes as much as you want, um, but you have to only pick the things now in this category. And so we whittle it down, and like one of the things that stood out to us is why we fast-tracked a lot of our international expansion was that was like, that was number one. And we were not expecting to see that. And so it's just, you know, talking to your customer base and then just trying to really whittle it down and then just get really hyper-focused on like one or two things and just like being very, you know, just prioritizing that a lot. Do you, do you think it's fair to synthesize um, one of your points as the real key to lifetime value um, and loyalty is the expansion of the product line? Or do you think that that's, that's too much, like too, too um, to a synthesis? I, I think that, you should evaluate without me being too like non-committal. Uh, <laughs> I, I think that there's how, how you, I think that can be misconstrued where I see a lot of value in keeping the product line very succinct. Um, but maybe it's, well, one it's what are the related products? Maybe you can get like on a recurring model. So again, like the best example is Dollar Shave Club. Like, I only need, I don't know how long I've had my core razor years, a decade, but I get new razor blades. I didn't shave today, but like I get new razor blades all the time. And so it's like that. And so it's, you know, what is, um, what, what is that related product? Um, and then, so maybe how can I get somebody on subscription or maybe are there seasonal elements? We have a customer of ours that sells uh, probiotics but what they do is they have seasonal probiotics. And so it's kind of interesting where they're hitting you both with subscription because you know I'm gonna deplete my, my 30 pills in 30 days, um, but it's also the seasonal thing. And so maybe I only, they'll start to introduce related products or seasonal products or something like that. And so now I'm gonna like, you know, already upsell myself um, as well. I love that idea. And Scott Galloway talks a lot about um, how Amazon at some point just decided we're going to demand loyalty from the customer and we're going to demand it in the form of prime. Um, mm-hmm. And the, the, I think the, the question that has kind of occurred to me as I've thought about that more is when to D to C brands start demanding loyalty in the form of subscription and how many of them can actually do that. Yeah. And, and yeah, how many, that's a great point is how many of them can do that. And so that comes with brand as well, because if Amazon would have come out on day one and said, we have prime people would just, have no idea what they're talking about. And also just because it worked for one company doesn't mean it will work for you, but that also doesn't mean you shouldn't try it. And if you kill it because it doesn't work, that doesn't mean that it won't work in a, in six months or six years because sometimes it's timing. So like an example is this company called Italic. They sell kind of like nameless uh, luxury apparel. And so they recently launched a membership site similar to like the Costco model where, Hey, I'm going to, I might be botching some parts of it, but essentially it's like, whatever, I pay $100 a year to be part of the Italic, you know, Costco membership, but I'm also getting all of these goods at a cheaper rate. So typically I'd pay whatever, um, I'm actually still blown away what clothes cost these days, but let's just say this, this t-shirt costs, you know, $80 typically on their site because I'm part of this membership, I can get it for whatever, 45. And so I'm like, okay, quick math. If I buy three of these, or four of these, I'm already break even. I know I'm also going to buy some pants from them. No brainer. So now they've got me in a hundred dollars a year. And I'm like, yeah, that's a no brainer. Just kind of like prime. And so again, maybe that's, that's not right for everybody. And also it might fail for people today, but work in the future. But it's, it's like seeing what some of these other companies are doing too. Yeah, that's great. That's a great example. Let's, um, let's do one more question as it relates to customer loyalty and retention and then move into, um, COVID and the impact that Corona has had on direct, direct consumer companies that you guys have, have worked with. What mistakes are you seeing direct consumer brands make most frequently when it comes to customer retention? When it comes, it's, is there like a specific element or just customer retention in general? Um, I think, I think just the specificity I'm looking for is whether or not you're seeing any patterns around the way direct consumer brands are marketing that is in some, in some ways neglecting lifetime value or customer retention. Um, I think that 
one of the, I don't maybe neglecting is uh, just the value of email marketing and maybe we'll throw an SMS. So, well, one, I guess with SMS is people abusing that. They're seeing it like as this new channel and they're seeing open rates off the charts, but just because it's open rate doesn't mean that it's like a good experience. Like, yeah, I'm going to open the text because I want it like, I want that number not on my, you know, on my phone to be a hundred with all these spam text messages. But um, I think it's creating, it's continuing that, that communication and that journey with your customer. And so like what, what got them to buy that first product and then how can you continue that, that conversation? And so uh, this is actually during our, our product advisory council. I was talking to one of the brands there and there, and, and this woman, um, she, uh, she's like, she, she's, she's the founder. And I think she actually got started as well because she built a really big YouTube following. And she's like, I, I made $60,000 last month off email. And she was just like, so happy. And she's like, I just thought email was dead and I paid no attention to it. And now we started picking up email marketing and emailing our customers and emailing them, not just hawking them products, but like uh, sh she's like in the, the fitness space. And so it's like, here are some of, you know, the more recent workouts or, you know, people also really like here, here's me working out, you know, in, in Chicago and being awesome. But it's like, people are opening this and building more of a connection with her and now they're buying more. And she's like, we can directly attribute to, and maybe some of these people would have bought anyways because they would have gone around email and come back to her website. But what she attributes to email was $60,000. You know, that's, that's almost three quarters of a million dollars if you're going to just straight line that through the year. That's a lot of money. Um, and especially for like a lot of these brands that are in the, let's say 500K to 10 million range, that's, that's substantial revenue. And also the cost to acquire that is, you know, your, whether you're using, you know, Klaviyo or MailChimp or, uh, you know, Omnisend or something. It's like whatever that cost is. But other than that, it's it's really nothing. Uh, you've paid so much to get them in your in your CRM or your database already. So I, I would think about that as well. On that front, I mean, do you feel like this idea of owned marketing is is terminology that most merchants are are really familiar with and and, and it's fluent and second nature, or is that more of a marketing technology um, form of jargon that that a lot of brands haven't really fully kind of adopted or, or considered? Um, you mean, do they know what the concept of own marketing is or do they use the concept? Do they internalize it? I mean, do they, do they think to themselves, okay, I have a much more profitable um, marketing channel through email because I don't have to pay an ad platform. Um, or is that, is, has that kind of entered the thinking of most of the companies that you all work with at this point? Um, I, I don't know if I could speak for our customers. I think a lot of people in general don't necessarily think about that or they'll become quote unquote addicted to these channels that they don't own. And so, you know, there's a job for Facebook and Instagram in growing your business, but you don't own that channel because the second you stop paying Facebook and Instagram, more or less, all of that revenue is dried up. You know, the same thing is, can be said for AdWords. Um, and, and so it's just, I think identifying the value of, of creating that relationship um, because now once you, they are in your email, on your email list, as long as you are providing them with what they're looking for, you know, you're going to have them, you know, not forever, but more or less forever. Uh, and, and they, and their needs and wants are going to evolve. And also what's interesting there too, is like, maybe I bought again, because it's sitting next to me, maybe I bought, bought this black iPhone case today and you keep showing me cool stuff and I don't buy for another year or another five years, but I've followed your journey throughout it. And when I get a new phone, I buy another one. And so it's just thinking about, about that because again, once uh, th this, this company that I, I helped run a while ago, PaleoHacks, we would, this was, you know, when Facebook pages were like the Holy grail, and you could generate crazy traffic and revenue off of for free for on their organic. And it was like overnight, boom, cut in half, 90% of our traffic disappeared overnight. And so we had to like figure out like, okay, what's the algorithm doing now? Uh, what kind of posts are they rewarding? Um, okay. It's, it's comments. Okay. So what can we do to generate a ton of comments? And so we start building that back up. We never got back to hundred percent, but let's just say we got to like 40%. Then, you know, fast forward, I don't know how long it was, let's say a year later, 
Facebook made another change from an organic perspective, bam, overnight, 90% of our traffic cut. And so that's 90% of that 40% we initially had. And so now we're like, you know, getting peanuts compared to what we used to do. And so because we, we didn't, we, we owned our page, but we didn't own that audience. Uh, we couldn't get in front of these people. And nowadays, I don't know if people still drive anything from like an organic Facebook page, but you know, at least from the people I talk to, it's, it's, you know, it's nothing. Yeah. And so anyways, it's just thinking through and understanding the value of that. And the same thing could be said there for Amazon where, uh, again, Amazon can be a great complement to certain businesses, but, but you don't own that customer relationship. Yeah. I think there's, um, you're probably familiar with there's a company in Toronto called shoelace and they do retargeting yeah. journeys. And I think some of the material that they put out about, um, Facebook arbitrage, um, I think has been really well considered and, and um, really additive to this space. We, we've kind of thought about it in terms of this gold rush where so many brands have been able to get off the ground by spending on Facebook and Instagram, but they've bet their models and their forecasts on certain um, CPCs and CPMs and that's really come back to bite them. Um, so, so, but related to that, oh, sorry, you keep going. No, no, go ahead. So, but I don't want people to neglect these channels because so something that Taylor Holiday, who um, what I like with a lot of the stuff that he shares is so he's, he's the, the founder and CEO or CEO of common thread collective, which is a, you know, one of the better um, e-com marketing agencies, but he also owns four by 400, which owns a handful of, of um, you know, million dollar plus direct to consumer brands. And so, you know, he needs to follow his own suggestions because he also has skin in the game and he's running these own brands. But something that he called out lately and where they really poured on the money for certain brands during the whole coronavirus uptick because they saw Facebook and Instagram CPMs um, or basically essentially cost per what a milli cost per impression or cost per click or cost per lead or cost per acquisition really drop back to, you know, levels of several years ago. And he's like, we had, you, you never know how good you have it until it's gone, of course. But he's like, you know, whatever, three, four years ago, we didn't realize with Facebook and Instagram how good we had it across some of these brands. And we were able to so quickly scale these million dollar, $10 million brands. Um, but if I could do it again, I would have spent 10 times as much. Yeah. And so it's when that window is there. And again, sometimes you kind of know, and sometimes you know, and sometimes you have no idea because I've been in all three of those situations as well is just like, how can I just double down or literally 10 X down on these channels, like while it's profitable or why it's work while it's working. Um, because again, maybe you don't own it forever. And so you should not just put all your eggs in one basket. And, and if you're, if it's, if you own the brand, you know, you can maybe take the drop um, and then start building up other channels later. If you have VC money, maybe they expect you to continue to grow month over month. And so it's a different conversation, good or bad. Um, but, it, but again, it's, you know, there's a, there's a time and a place for these, for these paid channels and sometimes you should spend a, a lot of money there because it's rather profitable. Such a good point. I mean, I think it speaks to kind of like the ultimate challenge, which is like e-commerce marketing and, and maybe potentially this is all marketing, but e-commerce marketing is just such a channel optimization problem. And how do you know when to really optimize versus diversify? And what's, what's the, what's the ratio there? What's the prioritization? It's such a hard decision. I, I think a good thing too, is people, I think will often think of uh different channels. So they're maybe like, okay, I'm on Facebook and Instagram. Like, should I, and, and it's always like the shiny penny syndrome where it's like, well, can you get more out of these channels where you're already good at and you already know how to measure and you already know like whatever from supply chain to actually like shipping and keeping these customers um, versus should I, now, should I now go learn snap or should I now go learn TikTok or should I now go check out, you know, Facebook or Google shopping. But it's also maybe a balance of like, maybe a better approach is like, okay, I've got Facebook. How can I keep doing more in Facebook? But I'm going to put them in like in the paid category. What is this, you know, owned channel such as email? And so instead of me splitting my time between Facebook and Instagram and Snapchat, maybe it should be Facebook and Instagram and email or SMS or something like that. Because if this channel does die, granted they were driving top of funnel and email often uh, continues to generate revenue from your existing customer base, but at least now you're building up like whatever those muscles and that skill set, so that if this does dry up, hopefully this can buy you time while you find that next channel. Yeah, that's good. That's 
that's a really helpful point. We've, we've thought about it internally as we have activity that's bucketed and paid and activity that's bucketed and unpaid. Um, and if we can grow unpaid, whatever percent a month, um, that is over the long term much more important than our ability to grow paid in the short term um, because it leads towards the word of mouth, you know, holy grail that I think we're all going for. Yeah. And, and that's where, like, so with SEO, again, you, I won't say you own it, but you own it more than paid because yeah. once you stop paying, let's say, let's say just Google only. So AdWords versus organic. Once you stop paying Google for AdWords, it's zero. And with organic, again, you need to like, I won't go down the organic rabbit hole, but you can, you're not paying Google per se. Um, but they also, they go hand in hand so well because with the beauty of paid, let's say again with AdWords, is the feedback loop is so fast. And so, um, especially if you're in a more transactional business, but even if you're just trying to generate a lead, what's driving leads or what's driving, you know, MQLs or SQLs, or if, if you're in like the B2B space, but what's gonna drive that transaction? And then can I feed the, and then utilize, because they open up so much more data in AdWords versus just Google Analytics and Google Webmaster Tools, or Search Console, is which queries am I getting the best dollar in, dollar out, or ROI, and then feed that into my SEO strategy, because that's more something that I, that I own. Um, and then the feedback loop there is so much faster, and I can turn on AdWords overnight, which is organic. You know, sometimes you can grow it really, really fast, um, but it's, it's not going to be overnight, where AdWords is like literally like that second. Does that, does that ultimately mean that there really isn't marketing that is just paid or just unpaid? They have to go hand in hand? No. Um, you can definitely grow strictly organic. Um, I know companies that uh, somewhat is in the e-com space, some not in the e-com space. Like at, like at PaleoHacks, which I mentioned before, we generated, especially once Facebook started to get like cut off a lot of traffic, we drive 90% plus of our traffic organic. Um, we, we spent no money and paid. What, what was Paleo Hacks? It's like a paleo community website. So it's so, like a content website and then you sold product against yeah, the content. Cool. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. We're, I know we're getting close to time. What maybe we kind of close the conversation with um, a bit on Corona and COVID and um, how have your customers had to adapt their fulfillment strategy um, over the course of the last few months, given everything that we've been going through? Um, I mean, fortunately, they haven't really had to do anything from a fulfillment perspective. Like, that's our job. And so, <laughs> like, leading up to it, there were some merchants that we had in certain areas. And so, like, we had some bit, really big customers that were very heavily concentrated in, like, our California warehouse or fulfillment center. And so... We, we connected with them in like early March of, hey, maybe we should start moving some of your inventory to, to Texas um, or to some of our other locations, which are closer, but um, in different states. Because we assumed, having no idea, of course, but we assumed that, well, if one state's going to get infected, every, every state's going to get impacted and infected. But it's, it's not necessarily going to all happen overnight. And so maybe California especially because it's, it's a much more populous state um, gets hit first. Um, and then another state we, they can at least, if, if we have to shut down a fulfillment center, which fortunately we never had to, um, then they would at least have their inventory distributed elsewhere. And so that they could fill from there, fulfill from there, but they really didn't have to do anything. The biggest question was just more on like um, the manufacturing side. And so oddly, some of our customers were able to get through it because they actually typically would stock up on extra inventory during this time of year because of the Chinese new year. And so they would have, let's say in, let's say had this happened in June, they would typically only let's say have 30 to 60 days worth of inventory. But because of Chinese new year, they had 90 to 120 days of inventory because they know that there's this like quote unquote quiet period every single year. Um, and then those in the U S who were manufacturing in the U S you know, uh, it just, it just really depended on, on the manufacturer and also on their products. We had some customers that had certain items that were just flying off the shelves, but those were typically their slow movers. And then it was really tough for them to manufacture that because, because there was so much like 
pent up demand from, from some of their competitors as well, um, trying to manufacture that too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm always a little bit wary of prediction questions, but I'll, I'll just go ahead and throw it at you and, and see where it goes. Um, changes in e-commerce that you think come from COVID one to two to three. Um, I think, uh, the uptick in grocery shopping online will, it, I mean, it might drop from the levels it's at today. Um, and sample size of one with my house, <laughs> we're using it all the time when before we never used it. Um, but I think that that will see a big uptick there. Um, you know, obviously there's been a lot of chatter around uh, just the, the share of retail being e-com versus not. And so, you know, it's nothing, wild to say okay i think <clears throat> let's say it was like in the 16 to 18 percent range and now it's like closer to 30 i think maybe that evens out let's say like in the 20s but i think what will be interesting is uh will will these direct consumer sites uh or brands continue to accelerate at the clip that they are are people have, have people more or less trained themselves at a larger scale or become more comfortable buying directly from them versus only going to Amazon. And that's where like a ship bob, our role comes in, which we need to complete that Amazon type post-purchase experience so that you and I and our parents or our friends feel com comfortable and confident buying from these brands, knowing that they're gonna get their product and they're gonna get their product um, quickly as well. Because you know we're seeing Black Friday, Cyber Monday plus levels every single day Shopify, which has more scale than we even have, they've been pretty public in some of the numbers that they're seeing as well. Um, and if, you know, if you're gonna use any company as a proxy for like where the market's heading. And so again, it's Shopify, will those numbers drop some? Um, maybe not an aggregate, but on a percentage basis of like total retail. Um, but, you know, I think that, and maybe this is just me being overly optimistic. <laughs> um, but that a lot of the, you know, just the D to C will continue to do well. And also I think it's interesting as well, where I was actually talking to this woman the other day, she works for a very large company, which owns a lot of, they're in the cosmetic space and they own uh, a lot of the, you know, name brand cosmetic companies or cosmetic brands uh, that, don't, that aren't used to D to C and don't understand D to C fulfillment and so they can't make that work profitably and they don't understand how to like generate those sales. They're used to, you know, putting things in Nordstrom or Sephora or Ulta or something like that. But they also own some, some smaller players in the cosmetic space. And those brands of theirs are killing it right now because they know how to market and sell directly to the consumer. They know how to fill those um, so that they're still able to generate a profit off of each sale or maybe off future sales. And so I think that, the importance that these larger players maybe put on these D2C brands. And even if it's just like the Intel and knowledge that they have will, will continue to improve. Good predictions. Thank you for uh, going out on the limb there. One of the things that if, if I had to just synthesize one of the things that I think that you've said here and tell me if you think this is wrong, I think that you've said that D2C and Amazon coexist. Amazon represents um, industrial level convenience. D2C represents individuality and specialty. Um, D2C, in order for it to continue to flourish, has to, has to excel at creating relationships with the customer and shortening delivery times to be competitive with the industrial level um, complement in Amazon. Yep, I think you said that rather well. Cool. Um, Casey, this has been so much fun. I really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, thank you, Finn. Thanks for having me.